Hello and welcome to On The Ball, the Norwich City podcast that was so bored during this international break that it's gone and created a whole episode around a guy who's already left. This is a special episode of On The Ball, all about Stuart Webber, who stepped down as Norwich City's sporting director last week after six and a half years of some of the best of times and some of the worst of times in the club's recent history. Yep, two glorious title-winning promotions, two disastrous relegations, three managers, 312 games, 71 players signed, as well as BK8, 90% and Soccerbot 360. We will, of course, crunch all the numbers that you'd expect, plus the rest of the good, the bad, and maybe the comments on women's football of Weber's reign. So where will the early days of the Webolution rank in the club's all-time achievements? How did it all go so wrong between him and the fans? Could he have done more with greater investment and is his legacy guard of honour worthy? We'll try and answer our own unanswerable questions as well as the ones that you've hopefully sent in. And what about what Weber leaves behind? Ben Napper's in the house and keeping it in-house. We'll read very little into his first interview as Norwich's new sporting director. Neil Adams, end of the peer show in Yarmouth, draws a crowd and Delia and Michael say they're keeping David Wagner on. Maybe it was just too difficult to remove him from the work secret Santa. I'm Steve Sanders, aka at NCFC Numbers. And as this is a special pod we have a turbocharged reinforced three strong panel of experts joining us for this one uh, one of whom is so excited that he's spilt some water already on this call but I'm not going to tell you who that was um, first the uh, Norwich City programme editor uh, back when Weber arrived in April 2017 Mr Dan Brigham Dan good evening how are you evening Steve I'm very well thank you always a pleasure to be on it's a pleasure to have you. You promised us unfiltered tonight, so <laughs> looking forward to seeing what we get. Um, secondly, a man who's been there every step of the way for the last seven seasons and probably bought most of the kits along the way. I don't know if that's right or wrong. Ryan Livermore. Ryan, how, how are you doing? <laughs> Hello, Steve. I'm very good. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Great to have you with us again. And uh, finally, he covered Norris City throughout the Weber era for the EDP, Mustard TV and The Athletic. I don't know if I've left anyone out there. Um, he also uh, owns and runs this podcast, extension me, so I'm uh, better be nice to him. Uh, all hail our returning Lord and Saviour, Sir Michael Bailey. Michael, lovely to have you back. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. Thank you very much. What a lovely introduction. Uh, yes. Uh, what a what a treat! You've been doing a grand job in my rather continuing and lengthy absence, Steve. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Flattery will get you everywhere. Um, so the podcast this week is going to be slightly different in format, which is why we've kept the formalities relatively short this time. Uh, so if you're tuning in for genre-defining features like uh, things we are not going to talk about and Kenny other business, then uh, I'm afraid I have bad news and they won't be here next week, but they will be back next time. Uh, we also asked you for your questions beforehand, so thank you to everyone who sent one in, and I will endeavour to ask as many as I can. Uh, but first, uh, I want to transport you all back to April 2017. Yes, so we're back in April 2017. Prime Minister Theresa May is vowing to crush saboteurs, as she calls a snap election. Anthony Joshua has just defeated Vladimir Klitschko to become heavyweight champion of the world. And most relevantly for this podcast, Norwich City are in a bit of a funk. Um, after the fairly disastrous six-month stint of Chief Executive Jez Moxie was ended in February, uh, and after head coach Alex Neil was sacked in March, the club are currently lacking direction on and off the pitch. 
Uh, enter 33-year-old Stuart Webber, uh, disconcertingly the same age that I am now, who arrived as Norwich City's first ever sporting director, uh, poached from Huddersfield Town, who, uh, having served as their head of football operations. Um, I suppose I should ask a question at some point. Dan, um, you were still at the club at this time. Um, can you remember kind of back to the to that time and whether there was much of a, a change in culture after his arrival um, from what had gone before? Yeah, I mean, first off, uh, the fact he was 33 when he joined means he's not yet 40, which is absolutely staggering to me. Or It feels like he's sort of been with us through multiple decades, uh, Stuart Webber. Um, so that that's a surprise. And when he came in, he was a sort of breath of fresh air. I was there. Uh, I joined when Jez Moxie started, so sort of thrown in to a quite um, cluttered environment, I think, across it. I think there were changes. I think they were keen to make changes. Uh, when I was sort of there, but then they settled for bringing in um, essentially a McNally replacement. And in the quickest move that the board has probably had in the 25 years at Norwich City, that they realised their mistakes and sort of led by Ed Balls, decided to go down what was then and still remains sort of the a modern approach of sporting director. Um, I, was, I was in the media team at the time, so I didn't work like incredibly closely with Stuart Webber, but I certainly sort of would interview him, chat with him, you know, whenever I saw him at Colney, get quotes from him, et cetera, run a few things, pass him around uh, ideas, et cetera. Um, and, you know, first things first, uh, as a leader, he's very warm and friendly, treats everyone exactly the same. He's got real sort of Russell Martin vibes. It's very similar to that sort of from the grounds, you know, from everyone in the canteen up to, uh, you know, people at the top and to players. He sort of treated people uh, with... Uh, with respect, I think, you know, at most times, and he treated people uh, like they were all on the same level, which I think is a really good sort of uh, leadership uh, quality. Um, but I suppose what I would say is, and it was pretty clear in his first full season in 1718, that maybe his missing piece of the puddle, puzzle when it came to leadership was he's he was quite thin-skinned when it came to criticism. Like when Norwich were, you know, I remember going back to Farkas' first season at Christmas, we were worried about potential relegation battles. You know, we had a massive six-pointer against, I think it was Birmingham City when Jamal Lewis was thrown on for his debut. And at that point, there was a lot of criticism. Uh, people thought that Farker wasn't working, didn't think the new model was working, etc. And you did see a slightly more defensive uh, sporting director at that point, And you saw a member of the local media being banned, for example, from interviewing players as well because they had a bit of a fallout. So that sort of thin skin was on display. Not me. I think that... <laughs> <laughs> no, you were banned by McNally, weren't you, Michael? Yeah, before that. Yeah, yeah. Just for yeah, four Yeah, before that. Yeah. Quite, quite yeah, a for one, well. As much as Michael probably did deserve it, it wasn't him that was that was banned <laughs> at the time. Um, and, and you know, the amount of in-house interviews that we did with him sort of slowed down as well, uh, as well. So even then you got that sense. And then I think that's held him back. So sort of, and that, I think that manifests is what manifests itself in the fact uh, he's a very opinionated man when he's in a bad place in the media. Like when he's good in a good place, he does his sporting director job really well in terms of public facing, which is set out a vision, tell people how you're going to get to that vision, what needs to be done to get there. And then if you don't get there and it goes wrong, then he sets out why it went wrong. And when he's in a good place, he's really good at that. And Michael will be able to sort of attest to this more because, you know, we interviewed him and externally a lot more. But when he's in a bad place, he'd suddenly sort of turn into 
the guy with an opinion who'd ring up Sutton and Savage on 606 uh, to have a moan about stuff. Um, <laughs> and I don't think, and, you know, compare that to, say, Ben Cancel, who would very much be politically really good. Like, you, he may, you know, I'm not saying he did, he may well have hated fans, but what he knew he had to do was get them on side, communicate really effectively with them and really openly with them, and his opinion wouldn't ever come into it. And Stuart Webber's opinion did come into it. So it's a bit like, you know, a manager like Alex Neil maybe missed out on having the arm around the shoulder. That was the one thing he wasn't very good at when he was at the football club, but everything else he was really good at. Whereas Stuart Webber probably missed, I think his one downfall when things got tough was having to sort of like, just getting defensive really. And if it wasn't for when things are going well, he's a, he's a brilliant sporting director. He spoke really, really well. Some of the stuff he told like in just in conversations with him about um, his predictions for like Jamal Lewis, Max Aarons, Todd Cannon, all our young players at that time, sort of five, six years ago, have basically all come true. Like he's predicted exactly the kind of level they'd all end up, what kind of clubs they'd end up and stuff. So he's like, he is an incredibly astute football person. There's no denying that. And I think maybe, and the fact he is only 39 means there's still time to change. Maybe he becomes even more astute, becomes even more professional, goes on to wherever he goes on to next and becomes a better sort of leader uh, of, a, of a sporting club, whatever. But I think really that sort of, that did hold him back, really. Michael, um, really good insight from Dan there um, into kind of the, you know, what Stuart Webb was like when he started at the club. Um, thinking back to... Uh, April 2017, you saw a, a glorious period where you weren't banned from uh, from asking questions. Of course, um, is, is is that is, is Dan's assessment kind of as as a local reporter as you were at the time? Is is Dan's assessment uh, something that you would chime with as well? Yeah, I think um, in a lot of ways, I I, I probably are, I, I think he still had the opinions. I, I think they, there was probably just an atmosphere when things were going well that no one really cared or they could bat an eyelid, and I I, I felt like that he he was never necessarily short. Sure of vocalizing them but you're right about the whole defensive element of what he was saying and sometimes how they would come out um when he came in he was uh really personable and really keen to make connections i think with everyone and everything it was really important that he got to know everything that was going on and um he would reach out to everyone i think everyone in the local media probably got a coffee with him at some point um and you know, he, he there would always, it didn't take very long in his company to know he was a Ricky Gervais fan because of how he was and his, his humor. <laughs> and, you know, there's always been that side to him. Um, and I think a lot of people, when people talk about the fact that he, you know, he's really honest and when people want that honesty, it's great. And then as soon as they want something else, it becomes an issue. I think that, you know, Stuart Weber is on that level all the time. So it's, it's the almost the environment around him that's changing in that regard at times, but maybe other people are able to um to filter and to turn the tap compared you know depending on what the environment is and what the circumstances are uh, so he really opening it, it was something we hadn't really seen because initially when it was like director of football oh they did that with brian hamilton that didn't work and and this was the first time when it was like done properly and i think stuart had wanted that job clearly he'd kind of already sort of done that job but to get it here um was fantastic and obviously zoe was a big part of him getting that job here um so i would say you know really and we will obviously touch on the other things for the first three four uh years of dealing with him he he there was so much that was good about it um but dan's also right i mean that first full season was tricky i, I don't think we're betraying any 
uh, knowledge or confidence is to say it was Rob Butler who was basically not allowed to go to Colney. I think he's kind of mentioned that himself. And even now, he still has to sort of ask if he's still welcome back at Colney. Maybe Stuart's already gone. But, um, you know, that... <laughs> That primarily came from a, one of the first interviews he did it late, like later in that season when he was getting, the club were getting stick over, I think, Wes Houlihan getting a testimonial. And he decided to do an um, interview with Radio Norfolk before the QPR away game when he basically said, you know, if you don't like this, this football, go somewhere else. Um, you know, not, you know, I kind of understand why you might say that, but also don't say it. And of course they then lose that game. And that led to, um, him and his family and his little boy getting abused uh, around Carroll road and it all kicks off. And, you know, all of that is unnecessary. I'm pretty sure I remember telling him, and I know probably who, who, um, ever was head of comms at the time, um, probably also told Stuart Webber not to do that interview at the time, but he really wanted to do it because he felt it was really important. And obviously then everything kind of kicks off from that when people had kind of told him not to do it. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting. You said there, Dan, as well, that, um, Stuart's Webber, um, you wouldn't have necessarily had that much to do with him in the media team at the time. Um, well, one of the first things he did in changing the culture, him, Zoe and Ben Kensel had a complete reworking of the football club in terms of how it was structured, basically, and what was important to it. One of the things that happened was that all the media team basically came under the sporting director's control, which I still don't, I'm not sure if that happens at other clubs, maybe it does, but I think that also signaled where he wanted the message to be controlled and, and, and where that was going to come from him going forwards. So you know, it's really interesting sort of, you know, look, reflecting on it back on it now after everything that happens, because you can, you can see what made it so good. And you can see why some of the elements maybe were going to not quite stand uh, a real length of time. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten about those comments uh, before or after the QPR, before the QPR game, you said it was, wasn't it? Yeah, which before uh, and then they got done for one. <laughs> yeah, I remember it well. I'm a one nil up through an own goal as well. Um, Ryan, on the pitch, um, I'll read you the team from Norwich City's first game um, after Weber was appointed, which was a 7-1 win over Reading, so it started well. Um, John Ruddy in goal, uh, Eva Pinto, Russell Martin, Tim Close and Mitchell Dykes. Midfield, a classic midfield of Alex Tetty and Johnny Housen, and then Jacob Murphy, Alex Pritchard, Wes Houlihan and Nelson Oliveira, and Josh Murphy, Stephen Naismith and Cameron Drome coming off the bench. A year later, only six of them are actually left at the club, and 18 months after that, it's only um closer and tetty who'd, who'd play for norwich again so weber kind of comes in quite quickly makes changes um and obviously with presumably with the priority of shipping high owners out and reducing the um age of the playing squad and of course one of the big changes he makes is is the first team coach daniel farker who and kind of for the first few years those two are in, inextricably linked really and so obviously it kind of goes without saying it's a very obvious question but that's a that's a key moment in um his six and a half year tenure is that appointment yeah no a hundred percent it was it was kind of the in, in the sort of telling the fans really this is what you're going to see from your football club now and i, I remember when he first came in being really impressed and getting the impression as well we would get a and uh, a left field head coach appointment when he spoke of his earlier meetings with Delia and Michael and he asked them, you know, what is your identity as a football club? And he claims their answer was, well, we wear yellow. And he sort of had to <laughs> take a step back and go, well, what, okay, well, what, what's that about then? And it felt like he was 
very much had arrived at that point. Like he knew straight away there was work to be done and he needed to completely change the the face of the football club. I think it was the Reading away game where Norwich won 2-1. And I remember, I think it was Don Goodman on commentary at the time saying that Norwich had either had saved the best part of 12 million quid in wages from the the changes they made that, that summer. So there was very clearly work to be done. But I feel like the, the the starting point of it all really was the appointment of Daniel Farker when we sort of have been linked with so many managers around that time of whom were just essentially has-beens. Like and, and then to then bring someone in left field who we had no idea about. And the, and the signings that not even followed Farker as well, but the ones that pre, predated him. I think before Farker was appointed, we brought in... Um, like Marley Watkins, James Husband, all, all players who, of course, went on to do so very well. We may but, come up again on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it was it was like certainly nothing I'd seen in my lifetime at the at the football club, and it and it was the first time as well that someone had perhaps come in and and not just made their stamp very evident, but made it clear they were going to change things very very quickly. And I'm not sure people were quite expecting that transition to take a bit of betting in time i think they assumed it would be a flick of the switch everything's going to be solved again but to his credit you know he, he came in and set out and did what he set out to do initially and that and that's can be said a lot more so than his, his predecessor if we can call jez moxie that but um yeah that was the, the start of the roller coaster basically wasn't it yeah and i mean i guess that roller coaster reached its uh apex to use a sort of mountaineering uh, terminology um it, during 2018-19 didn't it Dan and um I mean you've kind of alluded to it as well Daniel Farker was under a fair amount of pressure in that first season and and then also at the start of that 2018-19 season when he could have been sacked after the 3-0 defeat to Leeds but that uh, you know I, I mean every Norwich City fan listening to this is going to know the story but Weber obviously played a key part in that and I think you know there has been criticism of him in terms of what's gone on the pitch in recent years so it seems fair to give him the credit or certainly a share of the credit um for what happened that season although you may not want to do that I'm not leading you down any particular path but uh you know let, let's just <laughs> let's relive the that season for for a moment if we can yeah, I mean, obviously, really, the biggest impact that Stuart Webber did and the best thing he did was was appoint Daniel Farker um, as head coach. Two reasons for that. Daniel Farker was an excellent coach. Uh, but secondly, he played the youth. And and Stuart Webber does get a bit of stick and has got a lot of recent stick, I think, including from probably me on this podcast about the fact that a lot of the young players that have come through and thrived under Farker and successive managers since Farker we're here at the club and predate um, Stuart Webber. But what he did do is bring in a head coach, which who very much uh, was here to bring in and play the best of the youth team. And Farker did that, and brought in you know Aaron's Lewis Godfrey. We, we all we all know this. We all know the story. So really, when you know in in ten years' time, when we're looking back on Stuart Webber's sort of reign here, I don't think. I think it will be softened because of that, because we had so much success and because he brought in a head coach that did do that. Um, I don't think we'll look back on it in a way that we look back on Robert Chase, who, you know, obviously brought us from, took us to the heights and then brought us right back down because that sort of roller coaster hasn't quite happened with Stuart Webber. We've sort of bumped around essentially in the same sort of 10 positions between the Championship and the Premier League. Um, but Webber's greatest achievement in bringing in a head coach 
who played really good attacking football, it was also really his downfall and that he didn't really back that up because we've all we've spoken about this before. The idea of a sporting director is to ensure that every time the manager departs, a club doesn't have to sort of fundamentally alter the way they play football. And Dean Smith and Wagner are fundamentally play very different football to what Daniel Farker did. You know, even bearing in mind that Farker changed became a bit more pragmatic in the second promotion and change formation and stuff. It was still essentially the same possession-based football, just in a different system with the fullbacks not bombing on as much. But And since then, Weber hasn't stuck to his word when he came in, which was to make sure that if you lose a head coach, if they get poached or if you have to sack him, you just bring in a relatively identical one. Um, and that means you don't have to change uh, the kind of recruitment that you have to do, which I'm sure we'll get on to. You don't have to change the kind of players you're trying to bring through in the academy, etc. And so really his greatest strength in bringing in Daniel Farker was also his biggest downfall because he didn't he didn't stick to that method. I remember writing a piece. Um, it wasn't long after Daniel Farker had left. Um, and that was on The Athletic, obviously, get my plug in. But it was essentially saying, this is it now. This is This is the Stuart Webber era proper because at this point you're in and it's not just about you and the Farker partnership it's about you being the sporting director of the club and leading it forward to a prolonged period of time which you know physically he did because he was here for a prolonged period of time but from that point on it just didn't happen it didn't work it had the club has been at a loss since Daniel left doesn't mean to say that Daniel shouldn't have gone because it was, a, you know, perhaps it was just a manifestation of that situation. Something had to change and you could see the logic of it. But ultimately, I think history now, you're right, Dan, it will probably be a bit softer with Stuart, but you, you have to look at it and go, ultimately, it was all about Stuart Webber and Daniel Farker together because Stuart on his own didn't work. Everything that Daniel Farker could do in terms of softening the communication, the regular, really clear vision about what the club was trying to do, the actual manifestation of taking young players, trusting them on the pitch over a prolonged period of time and developing them. Brilliant coach, Daniel. In fact, I remember very well Stuart Webber telling me Daniel Farker was a much better coach than David Wagner from his experience working with them at, <laughs> at, at Dortmund, which again makes you think, okay, that was such a brilliant appointment um, where most people were saying at the time, well, you've literally just done what you did at Huddersfield. And he was like, no, 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 it just so happens this great coach happened to be in the same job. Well, that's great. And I you know, trust that. But then the evidence since is like, well, where was the next one? Because he kind of just sort of dug out Dean Smith. And then you went back to the first guy you appointed who you'd already been saying wasn't as good as the coach. You just, it's so I, I think there's just so much of the loss of way from that point. And personally, I think it's impossible to look at, um, uh, at general success for Stuart Webber at this football club um, beyond the period when Daniel was here. And I think they were just a phenomenal team. And that, however good the points tally was in 2021, I've got to make sure I get my years right now, that 18-19 season was magical. I think there are supporters who have been following the club for decades uh you know people who've been following it since following the club since the 59ers and they would come up to me and say you know what that 18 19 season was just the best uh something just about that group of players uh, seen as a bunch of misfits but i tell you what there were some brilliant footballers for a bunch of misfits 
They were playing amazing football. No one could stop them doing it. No one was good enough to stop. They all knew what was going to happen on the pitch, but no one could do anything about it because they were too good at it. Didn't even matter that they threw a few goals in because you, you'd stay until the end. And those games before, and maybe it's all heightened and sentimental because of what then happened, obviously, with COVID and everything. But, um, you know, that that is a huge headline in Stuart Webber's time here. I think, obviously, Daniel Farker was a key part of that. But that season, no one can take that away from him or anyone else. It was it was brilliant. And he he, he helped make that happen significantly. He, he put all those bits together. Uh, and I suppose it's a long way to go this season. But if you look at what Daniel Farker's doing at Leeds, maybe it suggests which one of those two very important men at the football club probably had more influence on us being promoted uh, those two times. But I do want to be fair to Weber again, like, we have touched upon him, how disgustingly young he still is mm-hmm. uh, compared to me. Um, and maybe he lost his nerve because he's still relatively inexperienced in what is a very demanding role. You know, much like Alex Neil lost his nerve when we lost 6-2 to Newcastle. Maybe Stuart Webber lost his nerve, panicked when it didn't start well under Farker in the second Premier League season and threw out what worked before um, and brought in Dean Smith, a much more pragmatic manager much like Alex Snow went much more pragmatic after we got stuff six to at Newcastle. So I, I don't know, you know, it's maybe if we get Stuart Weber in, in five years, that he, that version will be a much better version. But I do think when looking back on this, I think we, uh, Farker will get more credit for our success than Stuart Weber. Will yes, get. I think it, inevitably you're probably right. Um, and that feels like an apt way to end the first part, because in the second part, we're going to move on to the Dean Smith era. Stay tuned. Getting our use out of that jingle. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so to skip ahead, uh, skip through a couple of uh, of seasons, um, first time Norwich City go up to the Premier League, um, only £4.1 million pounds is spent in the summer transfer window. That is still the lowest amount by any club promoted to the Premier League since 2006. Um, so, and Stuart Webber referred to um, Norwich City as, as kind of going to war without a gun. Um, but of course, they then bounce back with another superb title winning season in the Championship, um, which you've referred to, Michael, which it's arguably more impressive than the first in certainly in terms of the points tally possibly the way they went about it you can argue about the entertainment value um they raised 35 million pounds through the sales of ben godfrey and jamal lewis and crucially keep emmy buendia um so we're back in the premier league and things are looking great right well uh, <laughs> i think everyone who knows the story knows how it goes from here um they spent 63 million pounds in the following summer window presumably out of desperation not to repeat previous mistakes that's over half the transfer expenditure of Weber's entire tenure um Emi Buendia is sold Ollie Skip is lost and the money is not spent particularly well um Ryan I I I guess I mean I don't know if Stuart Weber is one for self-reflection but I would imagine if he could take back one season even one summer um of his entire tenure it would probably be this one that 21-22 season was a disaster on and off the pitch really wasn't it completely I think that summer of 21 was the 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 turning point in his era really that was the the beginning of the end as it were because not, not just um in terms of the the relationship with the fans breaking down I'm sure at some point we'll come on to the whole B Kate 
uh, BK8, whatever, however you pronounce it, debacle. But certainly in that transfer window, I think because he very much tried to recruit around the basis of this philosophy he'd set up prior to, um, and it just didn't work out. And I think that's when he started to perhaps look at more experienced transfers because I, I can't particularly think of many in that window who were brought in with Premier League experience. And certainly in a season where you're promising to be much more pragmatic, it feels a bit of a contradiction to them by a 19-year-old Greek winger for £10 million who hasn't kicked a ball outside of his home nation. Um, not to say, that, of course, that Christos Charles isn't is a bad player at all because he started off quite well, but the argument is then, is he the player who's going to get you through nine months of a Premier League season? As we found out, um, probably not, um, and that and that really was the the start of the start of the decline, really. And the decline arguably then escalated with the appointment of Dean Smith, who again it, it was brought in to have uh, produce a more uh, n- a nuanced style of play that was that was more resilient and certainly more more apt of coping with the Premier with the Premier League. But the the problem is, is that Dean Smith then had hundreds of millions of pounds to invest in at Aston Villa, which he didn't necessarily have at Norwich, and that and he was not the right fit for the the tank that was brought in for his predecessor as well. So, I I I think that will ultimately be. Yeah, the 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 start remembered as the start of the decline, and it's hard to see from that point onwards, bar one or two additions, i.e., Gabriel Sara being one. Not just in terms of transfers, but that the, there's not been much of merit ever since then. Yeah, and 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 Michael Dan's kind of already alluded to this, but the there was a lot of talk of a kind of consistency of culture and of playing style. Um, but the sacking of Daniel Farker to Dean Smith, the man who was still in a job when Farker was sacked. Um, and then I suppose, I guess by extension, David Wagner as well. I mean, apart from the fact that names all start with D, there's not really a lot that those three managers have got in common. So uh, is, is that, is that kind of a bit of a damning indictment of, of the reign overall? How do you see that? I must admit, I don't really get as hung up on style of play stuff. I, I, I think you obviously need a coherent thought, but, things have to be going well for you to maintain the same sort of style of play. And, uh, and it, it, it's, if it's successful, no one cares. So the fact that Brighton have done, are doing something completely innovative under uh, Roberto De Zerbi, it doesn't matter that it's not the same as Graham Potter. I mean, obviously there's a similar foundational thread, but you get that anyway. It's just if it goes well or not. So, and then it becomes a stick to beat you with if you step away from it. But, um, I don't have as much of an issue with that over other things. I mean, let's be honest, Daniel Farker didn't really have it nailed what he was doing at the start of of, the, of his first 10 games in charge. I mean, even the win at Brentford was sort of a bit scratchy. I mean, they just sort of hung on for the second half of that game. Um, and they were already trying to do something different. I, I think it's more about fundamental decisions. I mean, I say this. By the way, I'm just going to throw this in there now. The the 2019-20 season, I still think Norwich would have finished far, far closer to survival had COVID not struck. I genuinely believe that uh, compared to how absolutely abysmal they were the next time they went up. Sorry, Um, plus all the injuries to centre-backs, which gets forgotten in the sort of midst of times. I mean, that had a critical... Uh, impact, I think, as well, didn't True. it? True. Although I think a lot of supporters would say, well, that's because you only ever went into games, into seasons with three centre-backs. So you're probably <laughs> tempting fate. But uh, I mean, 
I, it's more, yeah, it's more the decisions to me. So like the, the, the decision to sell Emmy Buendia had, had logic to it, but I, I, I still can't think of, I, th- I don't think any team had gone up and sold their best player and then also tried could, to recruit. Could they him. ever have kept him though? As in, would there ever have been a situation where Buendia would have stayed and happily played for Norwich City? I, I don't get the impression that he, I mean, he probably would have been in a sulk maybe until the end of the transfer window, but you know, I, I, I maybe, I don't know. I don't know. And also it's a lot of money. So I kind of get it. And again, some, sometimes you're criticizing people for just a manifestation of the situation. And ultimately what they didn't do is spend the money very well afterwards. And yeah. yeah. uh, they didn't seem to get a grip of the fact that they had a 20 million pound midfielder on loan from Spurs for the season. And then it was like, well, we probably need to do a good job of replacing him, which they didn't yeah. do. They didn't do. And they tried to scrimp and they didn't do it properly in that in that summer and they had lots of other mitigations for that um so uh, you know playing start i mean yeah if if they'd have ended up sort of scraping one nil wins and nil nil draws for the rest of the season and staying up i mean sure they'd have probably wanted an evolution at some point but ultimately i think i don't know i, I feel like there would have been an element of accepting that as as some sort of pro you know progress Dan, Dan, uh, uh, he does. <laughs> <laughs> two th- I guess two things on that. I think the greatest trick Stuart Webber ever pulled was convincing everyone we had to sell Emi Buendia. And he spun that so hard through the communications from the club, which is absolutely nonsense. The guy was contracted to us. He would have kicked up a fuss, of course, but he would also wanted to play Premier League, Premier League football. So there's no way he would have deliberately sat out. So what we did is we went into the Premier League season with a weaker team deliberately than the championship season. And as Michael says there, you've got to replace a player like Emi Buendia with top-notch signings. And we, you know, failed to do that. And I suppose the one the key thing about the style of football maintain being the same is is the impact on recruitment. Under Farker, we had so many uh, little tricky number 10s who'd play out wide and drift inside. Emmy, Todd, Dow, Steepy, even Wes when he started there. And we had, you know, num- we had defensive midfielders, Tetty, Tribal, Skip. Now, only what, a year later still, is it, for the sacking? 12, like 14 months later or something? We've got, uh, and Daniel Farker didn't have, only had really hard nail as a winger. And now we've got six wingers, no number 10s, <laughs> and no defensive midfielders. So it's an entirely different set of players in that squad and obviously you know players can adapt etc but when you're not spending a lot of money on them you've got to make sure there's a consistency of teams throughout otherwise you're just you're just appointing a manager not appointing a head coach you bang on about the defensive midfielder but the, the big point you said there dad is that is the communication and the spin so one thing i've learned from working and and following the club during stuart weber's time there is that no narrative is accidental unless they're completely out of control with it, which has happened. <laughs> that everything is thought about how to set. The fact that Daniel Farker got his new contract uh, announced just before the Hull game in 2018-19 was because the club hung on to wait for a moment when they thought it would really lift the spirits. I mean, it didn't. <laughs> no one really cared. It sort of happened. Then was like, oh, great. And it didn't really improve the atmosphere at all. But and it, uh, did the atmosphere need improving? I don't know. I can't remember at the time, whichever. But, you know, that that you're right. That The spinning of this has to happen. I mean, one of the things Stuart Weber really wanted to do was to sell the club's first £50 million player. I mean, 
I, you know, there's 27,000 supporters in that stadium. I don't think anyone has that as a goal for the club. So, <laughs> you know, I, I get that that's what he did, but that's, that was very much about him in his job. And, you know, there was always going to be another job because he took the job and basically said, I won't be here, very, you know, all the time. <laughs> it was something that, you know, you, everyone knows that, but whether you have to keep saying it is maybe a different point. But uh, so... That was a, a, a real thing, and um, you know maybe the idea of selling Emmy for that money w was part of it. But uh, you know that nothing's done without there being a logical, uh, a logical thought and a case put forward. That actually you would often listen to it and go, you probably wouldn't necessarily agree with it, but you go, on, well, okay, I can see why you are trying to do that. But then obviously you have to get it right, and I think that's the interesting thing, Dan, in that you know you said at the much earlier on about how he was saying things about young players coming through that would, that would prove right. You know, Jamal Lewis will bin off Harry Toffolo. Jamal Lewis is the one he'll go through. We'll sell him for 20 million quid. Max, Max Aaron's, you know, he'll make 200 first team appearances. Ben Godfrey will play for England, blah, blah, blah. And they were all coming, you know, they were all true at that point. But then sort of three or four years later, you had, ah, no, we can afford a better quality young player. So we've signed Christos Jolis. He'll be, he'll be better than Emmy Buendia, you know, and, and all of these things started being said and these briefings were being made and they weren't true. So um, I guess, you know, th there's a difference there maybe between being a salesman and being someone who is, you know, completely on and in knowledge of, of what is going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that you make the point about spin, because one of the things that unfortunately you can't spin are your own PR gaffes. And I think towards the end of uh, Stuart Webber's tenure, they, well, whether we want to call them gaffes or not, maybe he would stand by the comments, but they, there were certainly more and more comments that um, got fans backs up and didn't really um, help with the relationship between the board and the, the club and the fans. Um, I mean, if we're Giving examples, then uh, the interview to the Times in 2022, where he said, if 90% of me isn't enough, it's fine because I'm already ready to walk out the door. Um, the comments on uh, women's football to some two-bit journalist whose name I can't remember. And uh, the um, the even sending the finance officer out to ask the fans to, to make more noise. Um, Ryan, you've already mentioned BK8 as well. I mean, Ryan... Is that going to form a large part of the the kind of the legacy? Well, if not the legacy, then I guess fans' perception of Weber. Again, I think Dan and Michael spoke about his his kind of character at, at the start of the pod, and and I think some of that stuff is is going to leave a sour taste for a while to come. I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, the the analogy I like to use is the whole. If someone's outside your window with a boombox and they're playing love songs to you in the middle of the night, if you fancy that person, it's the most romantic gesture in the world. <laughs> but if that person is a bit of a weirdo who you've never met before and you don't want to associate with, it's the creepiest thing and the police are called, right? And it's, it's, it's... Are, you, are you speaking from experience? <laughs> <laughs> no. What an, what an analogy that is, by the way. <laughs> but but it's the similar it's the similar principle of I think I think that there was a degree of been able to excuse his attitude and certainly the way he conducted himself at the start when things were going well and it was very much initially a, def a, a defensive when criticism came his way it's when that defense then comes uh into a, a bit of an attack mode that's when the problems really arise and i think as much as he kind of sees 
some merit in being a person who is very much, oh, I say it how I see it. I think there's more to be gained from someone who knows when to stop and knows how to mediate those thoughts and, and control them. And if we're going to talk about other jobs he was linked with, I personally would not be surprised if the reason why uh, Leeds didn't come in, if Chelsea didn't materialise, is because of these PR gaffes and the kind of person he is and how he conducts himself, even around the fans who are protesting him. Like after, was it the Tottenham game at the end of season before last, where you have a handful of people out there with um, with bed sheets and whatnot, and he comes out and basically laughs in their face and says, I can leave whenever I want. And that's not, that's not a way to naturally conduct yourself to the fans. And going back to what Dan said about Daniel Farker being... Um, such a pivotal part of that and you look at what he's doing on the pitch at Leeds off the pitch as well people love him because of how he conducts himself and the passion he has for the football club and how he wants to make a, that conscious connection with the fans but the issue is with Stuart is that he does very much see this as uh, a job and I get that it is a job for him but I don't think he is quite still of the understanding that part of that job is the front-facing nature of it and you cannot get away with saying whatever you want no matter what your stance or your position is at the football club and the, he, <laughs> I think the guy is in in my opinion in need of a lot of PR training because he is I would be very surprised if he gets an, a job in another job in football in the short term with this kind of way he's conducting himself especially when the the work is not necessarily backing that up again if we'd have stayed up in that season and Daniel Farker had then stayed on or even if Dean Smith kept us up you know we were still in the Premier League or in a much better place right now you could it wouldn't be ideal but there would be some degree of allowance for it but it's at the point where the work is no longer backing up the talk and the walk isn't matching the 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 words that are said and yeah he's yeah <laughs> I don't know what else I can say on that really. That noise that noise summed it up, I think, Michael. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean this 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 probably stems from the fact that since since all this happened, I've been trying to work out whether to write something and I haven't written anything on the athletic about it. And you can get a bit damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um but I found the I found the whole the whole situation in Cardiff fascinating because here was a guy who ended up on the pitch at full time, um, didn't want to go over to the supporters to say thank you or to make, and maybe that had been for pure self-preservation for not wanting to, you know, incite anything or to get a negative reaction from them. I mean, the fans who would have been at Cardiff knowing that Stuart's going, I actually think they probably would have just clapped him back because they'd have been in a good mood and they just won. It might've been different if they lost, but for, you know, for that not to have happened or whichever, and then to still get a guard of honor from the players to walk off the pitch was a remarkable juxtaposition. And I don't know how it came about, uh, what, what seeds got sown for it to happen, not a clue. Um, but I think it did make the point that if you go inside Carrow Road and Colney, you will find a huge amount of people still working at the club who loved him being their sporting director and who they had a real affinity with, someone who really had their corner someone who maybe other people didn't understand and who really did gener generate some really good energy. I don't know if it was still like that to the very end, but certainly generated a lot of 
positive energy and and things that that you know really happened and it was great to work with them and i think the key probably thing to that was was loyalty there's a lot uh, probably the thing he always found most important was this loyalty to him um i used to get on really well with him and we have lots of conversations and um it was obviously beneficial for me because it meant that i had the, the club's view on things but i never took that as gospel because that's not my job. You have to speak to all of the people all of the time. And um, that's why I think in my head, the bit where it all went really awry was the second relegation because I just felt he probably wasn't sure what to do about it after that. Everything had built up to this second promotion and this staying up. And then when it didn't happen, I don't think anyone really got a handle of what the what was supposed to happen next in terms of on the pitch. And I think it kind of lost its way. I remember him. Um, I mean, I'm probably breaking trusts now, but you know, it's like, oh, go on. I'm not going <laughs> to. He hasn't spoken to me since this anyway. But I remember there was the bit where, um, you know, he was falling out with the local media and he was under a huge amount of pressure. It was off the back of the, um, the uh, dinner and uh, his comments for the Times off, off the back of him going to climb Everest. Um, so he was getting a lot of stick and the evening news ran its front page and all that sort of stuff. And it was all, you know, really heated. Do you want this job, Mr. Weber? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, the next game was Villa away. And um, I remember sort of being told, you know, if you keep your head down here, Michael, you know, you'll be all right. Cause I don't like anyone else basically in the media. So it's fine. Um, Norwich got relegated to Aston Villa. And so I did what I do, or we used to do anyway, at the end of each season when something big happened, which was write a big piece on why it all went right or why it all went wrong, um, which I guess constituted not keeping my head down because I, I did a piece, I, I rung a huge amount of people and, and put a piece that picked apart why it didn't really work out. Um, not really spoken to him since then. And I, I, that says to me that that loyalty that he wanted from so many people and he still had from so many people at the football club and that's why we saw what we saw at cardiff if you weren't like that if you did something that made him think oh you you're against me that was it he cut off you you look at the people who did leave carroll road the people who did go off to different jobs the people who did move on it was that really it may not have been stuart going you know <laughs> off but it might well have been that, well, this isn't really working, is it? And no, it's not. And I just, I don't know, you know, I don't, it's, it's hard. I don't really want to talk about my situation, but I think it gives an insight as to how he dealt with lots of people. And certainly from speaking to lots of people, you can see how similar themes popped up. And I just think that that's maybe some of where it unraveled, but also why you saw what you saw on the pitch at Cardiff, because you walk around that club and people look around the positive things and they still felt that, um, you know, that, that was a, that's a big thing to them and, and they will, they will miss him as much as they will probably look forward to some fresh energy as well. They made a big thing about, uh, about loyalty. Like a, it was on the lanyard as well, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but what they really meant, I think, is subservience. And I think that gets confused a lot in leadership. You can probably hear it on the High Performance Podcast a lot. I think people <laughs> demand loyalty, but what they really demand is people say yes to them. And, you know, without uh, there, I would say there's probably more yes men at Carrow Road and Colney now than there were in the first 18 months of 24 months of 
Stuart Webber's reign when I think he genuinely did want people to challenge him and learn from that and improve himself. Um, and I think, and this again is just natural human behaviour. The more defensive you get, results don't go well. You do kind of want just people around you to puff you up and tell you that actually you're doing things right. It's He's not the only person to do this. I'm sure many of us have been guilty of that as well in whatever work we do. Um, but that, that was a natural progression from him, I think, from believing in loyalty, but also being challenged. If you lose the challenging aspect of it, it just becomes subservience and no one grows. Um, I'm going to... Oh, sorry, go on, man. Go on. Oh, no, I say, does that kind of speak a lot just to how comfortable he got at the club as well? Because you obviously, there's, you mentioned, Dan, there's people are having are having to, um, to move on for whatever reason. Um, then it comes to them replacing them in whatever vicinity. He, you'd imagine him or those with him would have a big say in who is replacing. Does that then, do we think, lead to making particular choices of bringing in people who are perhaps going to, they're aware of, are going to say yes to all of these decisions and rather that is all in effect the start of a, a culture shift too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think potentially Michael Gorn, you're going to come in. Well, I was going to say that there's two sides to that, I suppose. There's one where they love promoting. They love the, the sign of growth and the fact that you can bring on someone who's talented underneath and, you know, bring them on and look at what we've done. And then they fly the nest because they've outgrown us or whichever, <laughs> which is a great narrative. And that is very true as well, because don't we all want to help people progress? But obviously that does also mean that they owe you something and that can also make your position much more comfortable because you're at the very top feeding these people below you. And I spent like three or four years going, where's the governance going? You know, it's all, it's all left. I, I get bored of saying it and people can go and speak publicly in, you know, other interviews and say, it's all here because we have a board meeting every month, but it's not the same. You know, it's, it, I, I know how it works. It's that, that, that's lost. And again, that challenge from above missing completely missing over the last you know two three years and i think that was partly partly an issue as well but i mean now my my dad died uh just a few months into that 2018-19 season and um i remember getting you know a lot of messages and sort of um uh, support from Stuart. you know we were talking in a way that he would you know be looking out for me almost and you know that i don't think i've ever said that before but that you know that's like that's really lovely but I want that to be from a, you know, a, a kind of a genuine point of view, not a, you know, a chip that then gets cashed in later because I've said something mean about what the club has done afterwards. So uh, it's, you know, that um, again, just one, one more. I, I, I remember ringing him about something someone had said to me and I wanted to check it. And he, he said back to me, I'm, I'm broken all the trust now, aren't I? But he, he came back to me and he said, um, oh, just speak to me about that. And it's like, well, no, I can't. That's not how it works. But, you know, maybe at other elements, that was how he wanted that that to be done. So, um, yeah, I should probably stop now. Go on, Steve. <laughs> well, I think you've written that. I think you've written that piece. Uh, you've just said it out loud. So uh, you don't need to worry about that anymore. Um, this, the secret grave fryer um, in the comment uh, asked the question, will we ever escape the boom and bust cycle of giving one person too much power? I think it feels like an opposite moment to bring that in. Uh, Rhoda brackets, the manager controlled everything, including sacking the kit man. I presume because the socks weren't clean enough or something. I don't know. Uh, McNally, the chief executive and Weber, the sporting director controlled everything just under different types. Maybe, maybe that is one of the issues um, at the club. But, well, I suppose but... I would say that uh, the, he's only had that power since Ben Kensel left though. 
Yes, that's I mean, it was, yes, that's it was true. Very it was very joint enterprise between then. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, are, let, are, we, are we able to? Sorry, are we able to clear up on whether Ben Kensel did leave because of BKA? Because I was under the impression that that was not the case. It was he was due to leave to go to Hibernian anyway, and that that was kind of almost a, a spin, whether intentionally or or not. I mean, from certainly, what I know, he it, it was not it was not connected. From yeah, what I certainly, know. certainly they were the the. The, all the briefings at the time were very much that he was going anyway. And I think I think that is true. And I think it had been, um, as much as you say, they were all sharing the power. I think Ben had found the, the dynamic quite awkward and I think was ready to kind of move on. Uh, I think he was hoping that you'd do that in really good circumstances. And then obviously BKA unraveled. But you know, what's not good enough for Norwich is definitely good enough for Huddersfield and Aston Villa. Yes, and as uh, tempting as it is to focus on those two clubs, we will end part two there and we will look ahead to the Ben Napper era and answer a few of your questions in part three. The handover has now taken place. Uh, ben Napper is Norwich City's new sporting director. He did his first sit down into the club last week. Um, from which I don't think we can glean much of than he seems to be quite a different character to Stuart Webber. Michael, you have met uh, Mr. Napper. Um, have. You have. Uh, initial thoughts? Yeah, it was, um, it was good. Uh, I think it, it was interesting having seen the club of the in-house media. I, I thought he looked um, a bit... Uh, green. <laughs> That's not too, uh, you know, it felt like that was a big moment for him to do an interview like that. And obviously what is the first time he's been a sporting director and it's a job and a position he's been thinking about doing for several months and something he probably was hoping to end up in for, for you know, for several years. So it's been a real journey getting to this point. He spent a lot of time, a lot of time at a big club in, at Arsenal. Uh, meeting him, um, I would say first impressions are it's really hard not to like him and that and that I wasn't going in trying not to like him honest he, he seemed um he seemed really uh calm um really uh lucid in his thoughts and you can tell that he's been at a big club and he's got some pretty you know keen ideas and he kind of knows what he wants I think I I, I think he's a, even though he won't have done this job before I think he'll he'll already have a handle on what is good and bad because he's been surrounded by a really good environment. So, um, and it's interesting when you think about Arsenal and you think of stuff like, uh, you know, the, the women's team at Arsenal, for example, is such an integrated part of the club and always has been. It's like, you know, UK leading. Um, so just in terms of those thoughts, you can you can see that he he's absolutely on it and, and he will have responsibility for the whole sporting side. So it's not like he's, you know, parallel with, with Flo Allen, who's the general manager of the women's team, you know, Flo will be reporting into 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 Ben Napper. And then in terms of the men's setup, I think uh, he hasn't necessarily spoken much about the academy setup, but it, it, he, I think, in terms of he obviously really likes what there is at, at Colney, and I think he can see, I'm sure he gets an appreciation for what he can do with that. But also, like he, I think it won't be necessarily a surprise to him that the job he's come into and the work that's needed to to be done there and like anything generally the Norwich job comes with a bit of time and a bit of favor and maybe a bit of uh freedom to to 
to make your decisions and things like that that you wouldn't necessarily get at other clubs. At least that's how it should work. And I think that's what he's expecting. Um, what I find interesting in me at this point now, as much as the theory and the thoughts and the ideas are all there, you know, this will be the first time Ben Napper is making decisions on the coach and the head coach and players. These are decisions he will get judged on very quickly in terms of what plays out on the pitch. So it it quickly goes from a position where this is an exciting job. I can't wait to get stuck in. All these things are great to, oh, Christ, I've got to sack him or I've not got to sack him. I've got to back him, whichever. So um, that moves on really quickly. Um, and, you know, he hasn't got the experience of that. And And also... I'm going to be really interested to see how it plays out in terms of, you know, what if he wants to really push something in January? What if he wants to um, cut the age of the squad? What if he wants to do this, that? Are the, are the board going to back him? Is Zoe Weber as, you know, executive director going to back him? Um, that will be interesting because it'll be interesting what obstacles he comes up against and how he deals with those. So, yeah, really interesting. I, I think there's a new energy there. I think you can tell that he's come, as I said, through a really good environment. He knows how to talk and deal with people from what I can tell from a really short meeting with him. So uh, I I certainly wish him the best because I think he's a good guy and I think he's going to come from a really good place. And I hope he gets the support he needs to make the job a good one. Yep. And I suppose the exciting thing is we have absolutely no idea because he has no track record anywhere. So, it you know, it could go either way. Um we asked you for uh, your questions about uh, Stuart Weber on Twitter last week, um, and we got quite a few in. Uh, they were much more balanced and rounded than I was expecting, so thank you very much. Um, but we haven't asked any of them yet, really. Um, so uh, I, the first one I wanted to ask, just again, for some uh, kind of balance on this, I think we've, we've tried to be positive, but maybe have strayed into some of the things that haven't gone right. Uh, our old friends Twitterkers um, have asked, what is the most underrated slash often forgotten impact or achievement of Stuart Webber? Um, I'm happy to put this one to the floor. I've got a couple of things that we haven't talked about yet, but has anybody, I mean, I suppose the fact that we haven't mentioned them, if they are positive, potentially makes them underrated. Um, I, think the, I think the bond scheme was to fund the club's academy, I mean, unless other people have different opinions, I think that generally was something innovative that um, seems to have really worked. And the fact that the, the academy is in a better place now than it was, I would say, six and a half years ago. Um, and the, uh, the improvements to the training ground, again, you know, still a work in progress, but something that, that is a, in a better place than it was when yeah. Weber arrived. I think the, pro- the problem is, they have been very good while Stuart Webber's at the club at telling you the good things. <laughs> I don't think there's anything there that they haven't said, by the way, this is really good. They, they don't want you not to know the good things. So I think that to say there's something underrated or I can't really, what I would say is the training ground is amazing. Like from what it was and the new recovery hub, I think is pretty, pretty close. Um, and that looks fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I don't know where it ranks really. I can't assess that properly. People will tell me where they think it ranks in terms of you. Know, I don't want to parrot what they say, but it's it's really impressive what they've done. It looks fantastic. So I, I don't think you can kind of undervalue that because that is going to be there for ages. Um, and it's and you know it's, it looks really good. And uh, I think that will serve serve them really well. Um, yeah, between that and the money they have generated through sales, um, you know they did. They did convince other clubs to spend shed loads of money on their players. So, you know, you deserve credit for that. Yep. Dan? 
I would say, yeah, the, he did. Stuart Weber did mention this in his uh, quite lengthy um, departure <laughs> letter. Uh, Two thousand words. Got the coverage. That, uh, <laughs> it's what one of your athletic pieces that one. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed, I don't, yeah. but I don't think he maybe gets the credit uh, he deserves for uh, the way he brought old uh, former Norwich legends back into the fold, uh, which seems like a really obvious thing to do. But I started at the club before he was there, and there was definitely a disconnect between some of our former legends, which can happen at a club when there's lots of changes, uh, I, I imagine, although we do have had had the same board for pretty much 25 years. But I was um, I was part of bringing you and Roberts back to the uh, Colney for the first time in, and so I took took him there. And he, I mean, he was genuinely emotional about it. There were, he cried because he hadn't been there. <laughs> I, th- I can't remember whether it was since he was left or at least, you know, it'd been a decade or something. Um, and Weber was really, really hot. It wasn't just box ticking. It was really hot on making sure that kind of stuff happened. Really big on putting um, every single player who's been capped by Norwich. I've got are on a wall at the training ground, all the leading goal scorers, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think when people talk about wanting to be a community club, it's a really easy thing to say. And God knows I've got a, a lot wrong with that, obviously. But that was very much part of being seen as we take... Norwich's history and its place in the county really, really seriously. Um, and the players really appreciated it. And the former players really appreciate it. And current players really appreciated uh, being able to chat to sort of some of the former legends as well. So I think maybe that was underrated. Yeah. And, and actually, I think until the Guard of Honour kind of blew it, I, Michael, you referenced this, but perhaps the way he was valued and viewed within the club was maybe not uh, appreciated outside of it quite as much as uh, as, as it uh, it, uh, we'd expect it to be, I suppose. Um, okay, final one then. Um, Weber said in uh, in 2020, I'm passing through. My only job is to make it look a lot better and stronger than when I turned up. And Liam has asked, did he honestly leave us in a better position than when he joined? Uh, Ryan, I'll um, pass this one over to you. <laughs> um, I feel facility-wise, it's hard to argue otherwise, but I would... I'm not going to say we're in a, a worse position than when he joined because I feel like there was the, the the club was certainly very lost as to what they wanted to be and even if we've steered away from that to a, a degree now there is still a basic foundation there to get back on track should they want to do as much i.e. like Colney as we said is wonderful or Lotus Training Centre is wonderful now so there's a good um place for the youngsters to develop and really get to the elite of the game if they want to sell them on um but i feel like the the upward trajectory is very much stopped at the moment um uh, that's do you know that's that's a, a good question i am gonna say we're probably about where we were but for different reasons and that, that's all I'm going <laughs> to say on that. That's some top-class fence-sitting. I like it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, I have no idea either. We're certainly we're lower in the table, but uh, I, I, I don't know if that... I, I think maybe we are in a better position. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's Mike... never... Oh, go on, go on, Steve. Well, what you're, I think you're going to say no. I, it, it, it's always good. it's never going to be a black and white answer was what yeah. I was going to say so the training ground is completely different that is a phenomenal piece of work that is a proper legacy he knows it as well that's why he did it um, so it's all there that's fantastic the, the finances and the balance but you know they were in a really difficult financial situation when he came they're in a really difficult financial situation now he's gone that's 
pretty much where they are. It's slight, slightly different. And, you know, you've got sort of other people involved, but you kind of owe them a lot of money potentially. And uh, we, we're, not, we're yet to see if the Atanas, you know, where, where the Atanasios are with wanting to, um, you know, uh, purchase the club and, and when that happens and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I think I, they're not in a better position there off the pitch in terms of financially. And I would say the squad is pretty similar. It's lopsided, it's unbalanced, and I don't think it's built for any um, immediate kind of success. So um, the reputation of the academy has really flourished. So I don't know if the output is matching that, but certainly in terms of if you go across football, people really do see a Norwich youth production line that is effective and also um, translates into a path, pathway into first team football. Um, so that's, that's I think, been a real um, move forward as well. Um, but also, I think some, as I said, the, the governance at the club isn't, you know, they, they made a lot of mistakes when they did have proper governance. I don't think that they now do have proper governance. And I think that's a, a slight issue as well. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's probably, I mean, it's something, it, let's be honest. It's something people trot out, isn't it? It's a cliche. I, all I want is this place to be better when I leave than when I arrived. Everyone says that. And, uh, it's, it, it can't all be on them anyway, that there's a lot of stuff there that's external and, and Stuart Weber couldn't have necessarily have foreseen or, or done much about, you know, some of it is because they just didn't have the money to some to some sustain them, <laughs> sustain them. A hard word to say, uh, sustain themselves in the Premier League and and then made bad decisions. So, yeah, um, in some ways he's managed it, but and not in others. I guess uh, was and just a, I suppose one place. Well, so the famous kind of quote obviously is pissed up. Weber saying that uh, the last previous regime or the one before that actually had pissed our Premier League status up the wall. Um, and it's mm -hmm. tempting to say the same has happened, but I don't really think it has because when we were relegated under McNally was was much more of a disaster or a shock than being relegated uh, in the last two times we have because we'd established ourselves after a couple of seasons um, uh, in, a, uh, in a less competitive Premier League as well. So I don't think we've quite fallen from grace in, in the same way we have Premier League's much more competitive now as we see in this season with the three promoted sides. Um, uh, and we're, which also, opposite of that, means we're probably in a better position despite two poor seasons of looking like an attractive proposition in the Championship uh, now as well. Um, I would say the pathway, as Michael said, the pathway is better, but also Stuart Webb was really lucky that he came in with a into a place with a bunch of really great youngsters. And we don't know yet whether in five years' time we'll be saying the same thing about Stuart Webb because let's not forget Johnny Rowe and Tony Springett and Abu Kamara were, and Jaden Warner were all, all here before he came in as well, which I think some people think they came after. But even those kids were here before he came in. So we don't quite know yet how effective that pipeline is going to be. Um, so there's one thing uh, with Weber's departure, which had not been mentioned, which I was going to mention, actually. Um, a very dull point probably to finish on. But I think <laughs> Zoe Weber being on the board is now probably more of an asset that Stuart's not there now because suddenly there is more accountability there is more uh, probably accountability with the sporting director reporting into the board. She is an actual asset, having someone you know being experienced around football, 
in a board that desperately needed that. So that may be a positive to take from it. She can actually not worry about having to sack someone in her family anymore. And I think that could potentially be a plus. Because, you know, everyone, you know, I've worked briefly with her. I don't really know her at all and didn't really work directly with her at all. But people say that she's really sort of engaged. Um, and uh, as I said, we've missed that on the board, I think. So, um, so maybe that accountability and that sort of governments may, may start inching forward again. And inching forward and accountability is the positive note that we will go out on, I think. Um, speaking of Zoe's, let's just ask one final hypothetical question, which we don't need to answer, but from our own Zoe Morgan, is what we learned along the way that Norwich City, after all, is the biggest mountain there is to climb. Well, amen to that. Um, that's all for today's On The Ball, the Norwich City podcast that was running out of mountain climbing gags anyway, uh, and the Norwich City podcast that's also bloody knackered. Um, Make sure you subscribe to On The Ball if you haven't already. It's free on your usual player. Just search On The Ball Norwich City on your preferred social platform. Ratings and reviews wherever prompted are always hugely appreciated. And if you want to get in touch with any questions, I guess you'd probably better send me a direct message on Twitter at NCFC Numbers. Um, we have done a, a best 11 and a worst 11 um, as part of this podcast, which we're going to run separately uh, later this week so uh, keep your ears peeled for that it's so good it's so good that it deserves its own podcast um, think of it that way I mean it, I, I think it was pretty good um, but in the meantime a big thank you to our three guests tonight Ryan um, thank you so much for your time thank you May I'm gonna go to bed <laughs> he's rubbing his eyes <laughs> yeah it is only 10 o'clock right now it feels like about three in the morning um, Dan thank you so much Thank you, Steve. I think I, I aged about five years in the process of that last answer I just gave, but, but a pleasure apart from that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what lasted longer, the Stuart Webber years or this podcast. Um, and Michael, did you did you enjoy your homecoming? I did. I, I think the investment of only investing 90% into tonight has really paid dividends now. So yeah, really. <laughs> Ooh, one uh, final dig. Couldn't resist, could he? Just an opinion. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> take me out of context. No, I felt like we got at least 95% of you. Um, thank you as well all for listening and uh, for sending us your questions as well. Uh, it's been a world trip down, down memory lane. Um, normal service will be resumed as we mark the start of the Napa era after the QPR, uh, QPR game um, as well as the uh, Best 11s pod which we'll hopefully get out later this week um, which will have all your favourite features the QPR pod that is and least favourite features uh, until then never mind the danger <laughs>